This CTN Solution Spotlight is brought to you by Puppet. This is CTN Solution Spotlight on CIO Talk Network. Welcome listeners, this is Sanjog, all your hosts, and the topic for conversation is evaluating Puppet's automation capabilities. And I have with me Nigel Kirsten, who is the Chief Technical Strategist with Puppet. Hello, Nigel, how are you? Good, how are you doing today? Very good, thank you. Now, recently, many organizations are very seriously considering digital transformation, and that is also as a possible way to address their next wave of needs or challenges. Puppet is positioning itself as an industry leader in automation and claims that while automation is considered as a key driver for DevOps, if it is leveraged in a holistic manner, can actually be the shortest path to driving changes related to digital transformation with confidence. So we felt it would be very timely and important to find out more about Puppet's automation capabilities. So Nigel, Puppet positions automation as an enabler of digital transformation with so much else that influences the outcome of digital transformation initiatives. How do you justify this connection? That's a really good question. So the way I would tend to look at all of this is I think there's a bunch of reasons why automation, which has been around for quite a while, has really gathered steam once the whole DevOps movement really sort of started picking up, particularly in the enterprise and corporate sectors. So the way I always think about DevOps and automation and their relationship is that automation is necessary, but it's not actually sufficient. And so one of the earlier definitions of DevOps was around CAM, culture, automation, measurement, and sharing. And so I think when you actually package all of those things together and you're actually creating cultural change where you're breaking down silos within organizations, you're following a systems thinking approach as far as optimizing your whole software delivery lifecycle from committing code to testing code to running it in production, once you're actually measuring all of the results of your automation, and once you've instituted a culture of sharing, both within the organization and externally. One of the common things we often talk to people about is who are embarking on this journey is that 80 to 90% of what you're doing in IT is really the same as everyone else. And so if you can actually take a lot of the prepackaged work that we will do either with Puppet, where we have existing Puppet modules, and with many of the other tools in this space, try and standardize your operations as much as possible to be aligned with how everyone else is doing it, and then really focus all of your efforts on your unique differentiators around that sort of 10% of your infrastructure is actually different to everyone else. So I totally agree that automation by itself is not sufficient to guarantee the success or the outcomes of any digital transformation initiatives. But I think this is why we're seeing DevOps really pick up things. That when you take a more holistic approach, when you take systems thinking, when you do more than just agile automated infrastructure management, that's where you start seeing much higher, higher rates of success. Now, to that end, automation, in my view, just enables select IT capabilities. How do you see that enabling innovation or business agility, which is what the business wants today? Yeah, that's another good question. So I think this has been the other really great sort of aspect of the whole DevOps movement in the enterprise is that for way too long, those of us who worked in operations, in IT, as systems administrators, we really were sort of, you know, the trolls under the bridge. You were the cost center just sitting there, you know, away in your cabin, seen as a necessary evil that you just needed to spend money on. And there wasn't a lot of connection to actual business value. And I think as we've seen more tech-savvy senior leaders appear in organizations who've sort of grown up with a better understanding of what's actually possible these days, we're seeing both of the senior leadership have an understanding of the strategic import of 
of automation and that it enables you to ultimately deliver higher quality software faster. But on the flip side, I think the other really great aspect of all this has been that there's now an understanding amongst people who work in the DevOps space, in operations, that you can't just ignore what the business does. That it's not some sort of badge of honor to wear to go, I'm just a technical person who doesn't do business. Really, delivering business value is everyone's job. And so I think that's been a really amazing mind shift that we've seen amongst practitioners and team managers, particularly in larger organizations, that they're all, they care now about what's the actual value being delivered to the business. And I think this both allows them to align their own projects to be you know, about delivering that actual business value, but it causes them to actually be able to communicate the changes that they're making upwards to their higher management so that those projects that are delivering business value and enabling the business to be more agile and more innovative get support, that they get budget year after year, that they're, being, they're showing a culture of continuous improvement and continuous innovation, and they're going to continue getting funded for that and create that sort of momentum within an organization. But Nigel, many organizations have already embraced automation, and they're also talking about DevOps as part of their IT portfolio. And, and in many cases, they have actually been reaping the benefits so what gaps do you think Puppet uniquely positioned to fill? Yeah, so I think there's a few things. So if you sort of take as a proxy for automation the whole infrastructure as code movement, that was sort of one of the earlier terms that I'd say six or seven years ago we were seeing used an awful lot before the DevOps movement started, where there's a few people who offer solutions in that space, but where I think that we're actually uniquely suited is that what we do is we follow very much an infrastructure as code process. So I'm just going to explain that quickly for any listeners who might not understand that. In that rather than just doing automation by say, creating a series of tasks in a GUI, by having some proprietary system where you might describe automation, bundled as part of the application, what you can do with a tool like Puppet is actually express your infrastructure in a text-based format. And so it's declarative, so you can say, I require that these resources exist and these are the relationships between them and you actually start modeling your infrastructure. But because it's all in text, you can start taking advantage of decades of learning from the software engineering side and you can start actually treating your infrastructure as code. You can actually use version controls. You can have tagged releases. You can have branches. You can start doing peer review around your code changes. And we know that all of these things resulted in more reliable code and they're resulting in more reliable infrastructure. I think they are the general benefits of the infrastructure as code space. But where we're uniquely positioned to take advantage of those things is that we provide an accessible language. You don't need to be a full-time programmer. You don't need to... DevOps isn't about operations people having to become systems architects. It's about them understanding the software delivery lifecycle and how they can take advantage of software engineering features. So we have a very accessible domain-specific language that you use in Puppet that lets you express your infrastructure. And it's accessible to both developers because it feels like working with code, but it's also accessible to operations people who perhaps their programming experience has largely been batch scripts or bash and shell scripts that they've used to automate small tasks. I think that's one of the really big differentiators. On the flip side, we also have a very robust system that's quite rigorous. So when people express their infrastructure in code form using Puppet, we compile that into a catalog that is something that we store historically. And that's the state description of that part of the infrastructure at that point in time. And so I think what we're seeing increasingly is that the DevOps movement provided all sorts of benefits as far as dev and ops teams working together for a common goal. But inside enterprises, particularly in financial services, in retail, in healthcare, 
there are other constraints. And as much as everyone likes to paint the security teams as the boogeymen, as the bad people who just want to say no to everything, there are real reasons why these people exist and why processes and policies exist the way they do. Because we actually provide very, very strong and rigorous system around reporting of changes that were made, around catalogs and storing what was the state description over time, that allows security teams to do things like go, well, we discovered that we had a vulnerability in, say, the first week of November last year. Let's go back and see what was the actual state description of that part of the infrastructure at that time. So I think where Puppet's uniquely positioned is that we're both accessible to people who are just embarking on learning programming and this sort of automation journey, but we're also rigorous enough to fulfill the actual business needs around security and compliance. Now, Puppet also claims the automation solutions it delivers would ensure better enterprise class availability, security, and DevOps compared to the competitors. So what's the basis of this claim? And the other question I have is what has been added or changed in your service that allows you to make this assertion or even strengthen it? And, and it's, it's a new offering. So if it's new offering, are there any disclaimers? Yeah, I think along the lines of the stuff I was just talking about around security people really enjoying the ability to validate what production looked like at a point in time. I'd say the other aspect to an infrastructure is code workflow, and we've seen this from the DevOps report that we put out each year, and we just closed and we'll be publishing results in the next few months for 2017, is that you get much, much better results if security are involved earlier in the pipeline. So rather than just security turning into a role where you have to validate production and run through a checklist and say, you know, what ports are open, is this application installed like in this way? Once you've actually got an infrastructure as code approach and high degree of automation, security can rest with confidence that all of your production instances are configured the same way. There's no inconsistency across them, which is where we see most vulnerabilities come from, and most production outages actually come from. And they can get engaged earlier in the design phase. So just as you want your operations people and developers collaborating together early in the design phase so that when they hit production, it's in a state that actually works for both teams, we're seeing increasingly the security are being involved in that process as well. So really what we've been working on over the last few years as we've increased adoption in the enterprise space has been making those interfaces more accessible. So it's not just hitting out a bunch of machine formatted data for those reports, but also making the reporting interfaces much more accessible to people, really improving the speed of answering simple questions about your infrastructure. At the same time, I think we've moved well beyond the point where most enterprises are actually homogenous environments where there's a single tool. And so because we've been succeeding so well in the enterprise, we're having a lot of people wanting to work with us around integration. How do we actually make the data that we're exposing more visible and available in other decision-making contexts in all sorts of ways? The really big one, I would say, over the last year, though, has been us focusing on giving people the ability to observe the difference between desired change and undesired change. So to go through that, let's say you have your puppet code that expresses how your infrastructure is meant to work at any single point in time. Then you make a change to that. When, when Puppet Next runs across your whole fleet, a change will come through on all the reports saying, this thing changed. And we can draw a whole trail all the way through from this change hit production to this developer operations person invoked that change. And so that's a desired change. Undesired changes may be someone did something manually, there's a bad actor on the service, or perhaps it was an unwitting dependency where someone upgraded something and it caused a dependent service to, be cha to change its version when no one actually wanted it to. That's an undesired change. 
And so we've been really focused on making that available through APIs and through data, but also in the interface. So you can look at your infrastructure as a glance and go, what are these changes that are going on? Are they bad things that are being repeatedly undone? Or is this just a sign of my teams are working in an agile manner and actually pushing lots of changes through the system? So Puppet is still a third party. And when it comes to the customer security, when you're dealing with mission-critical data systems or applications, you have different and evolving expectations. So how much security that we have to incorporate in it? And are you actually well-prepared to match up to all those expectations that those decision-makers may have at any given point? Sure. So I think this is something where we've always had a big advantage versus our competitors, but there's a little bit more work to get going with Puppet because we use SSL client certificates to verify all of the endpoints as well as the actual services that people connect to. We've always, always had a very strong and rigorous secure approach. I think being quite lucky that when I first joined Puppet and we were, I think, 14 or 15 people seven years ago, and now we're getting close to 550, we had a lot of people who'd been in security roles various organizations. We had people who'd come from banks in Australia. I worked at Google closely with security teams. We had people from Caterpillar. We've had a lot of people who've had to actually do security in the enterprise. And so we all had a pretty good understanding of what are you actually looking for from a vendor? And ultimately, I think it all comes down to you're looking for transparency, you're looking for speed of response, and you're looking for a good trail around how have you actually handled security issues in the past. So if you go to our website and you go to puppet.com slash security, you'll actually see how we've handled all of our CVEs. We actually follow most of the standards around tagging CVEs, the severity. And honestly, most enterprises are in such a terrible state when it comes to security, not through the fault of any of the security teams, but just because they're not automated, there's lots of silos, it's hard to get visibility across everything that once we actually show them how much we kind of take security seriously and we talk about the secure architecture within Puppet, usually the security people are the people most clamoring to actually adopt our tool. If you look at the enterprise IT needs that you may have, the obvious ones, of course, there would be reasons why people chose automation and it's thriving and it's creating value. Are there any not so obvious enterprise IT needs that automation solves? And perhaps we should also look at places where automation could be an overkill. So are there areas where automation would be an overkill? So if you were a customer and trying to calculate ROI for automation, would you say that ROI will be all in hard dollars or would you see them primarily mostly being in soft benefits? Okay, so I think there's a few things there to kind of unpack. And I generally, and you know, I would say this because I come from an automation space and even before I started the Puppet, I was one of those people who was a very strong proponent of automating absolutely everything. Even if you've only got one server running a given service, it's worth automating it, not just because of scale, not just because of speed of deploying features, but what's your disaster recovery strategy? Would you rather have someone have to follow a checklist and set up a whole box by hand? Or would you rather just be able to deploy another instance? What's your plan when you actually need to scale out that particular service? So I think there's very few spots where automation is actually overkill. Sometimes there's a degree of investment in automation. So a good example, I would say, is a lot of legacy systems. A myth we often run into when we're talking to enterprises is that they're working on their greenfield deployments. They actually want to follow modern principles around these, but they don't actually think that there's huge benefits in investing in automation for their legacy systems. But sometimes really small investments can actually have a really huge impact. 
So an example I would say would be look at your foundational layers. Look at things like time synchronization across your fleet. How often are you running into authentication issues? How often are you having trouble actually investigating and doing forensics around security issues because log timestamps are out of whack? So very simple things like ensuring all of your servers are synchronized in terms of time, ensuring your authentication credentials, that you don't have stale ones sitting around, you have up-to-date processes for automating the delivery of credentials onto machines and access control. Very simple things like that can actually have a really, really huge win. And one story I often tell people about is a customer who had a, you know, 12 instances of a legacy application and they just decided they weren't going to bother automating anything. And then someone had some spare time and all they did was take all of the configuration files for that service and check them all into version control. Then they set up some simple automation to deliver those config files onto the boxes. So this is a pretty simple process. In Puppet, it takes you two or three minutes to actually define a file resource to say, grab this file and deploy it as the config file. If it changes, restart the service. So suddenly change processes sped up an awful lot. But perhaps more importantly, they got a whole bunch of insight and looked at things and went, look, we've got 12 services that are almost all exactly the same. Yet we have 10 different variations of this config file. And so by simplifying that process, they suddenly actually freed up a whole bunch of time every time they did an upgrade because services would automatically restart when they pushed a new config file and actually reduce differences and inconsistencies across those services. So that's sort of my general answer for whether there's any place where automation will be overkill. I think very rarely is there overkill in automation. I mean, you can get to a point where sometimes there's one step in the process that's going to require manual verification anyway, and it's not worth spending three or four weeks for some particularly intractable service in terms of automating it. Now, as far as calculating ROI for automation, I think ultimately you've got to come back to what are your actual business goals? And usually they rely, they rest upon increasing speed of delivery and increasing quality at the same time and reducing your defect rate. So increasing speed both for delivering new features and for recovering from failure. So once you're actually measuring those things, I think that's how you actually calculate your ROI for automation. So whether that's in hard dollars or soft benefits, I think depends upon your business goals. But most people should be able to get to a position where they can actually quantify in hard dollars what is the actual cost of this service being down and what's the cost in terms of people time of babysitting this service and managing it all by hand. Let's take a quick break. Listeners will be right back after these messages and talk about if automation is taken all the way. The more you automate, which is what I'm saying, the more risk it could create in terms of, say, the cascading issues if something goes wrong, and that could potentially offset the ROI you might be looking at with respect to automation. So what is Puppet done to prevent something like that from happening with its automation suite? Please stay tuned, listeners. We'll be right back. Today, enterprise technology is both strategic and global. Each week on CTN CIO Talk Network, IT thought leaders from around the world share their experience with listeners as they discuss with Sunjog All how they are trimming costs and partnering with business to innovate and help IT become more competitive, better care for customers, and improve the corporate bottom line. If you want to keep up with IT thought leadership, listen to CTN CIO Talk Network with Sunjog All at CIO Talk Network. 
This is CTN Solution Spotlight on CIO Talk Network. Welcome back. So, Nigel, more we automate, the more risk it could create. And that could be a perceived risk, or maybe it could become reality if it's not handled properly. So, does Puppet have anything in its suite, the automation suite, so that we don't have this issue with what potentially offset the very ROI that you were looking for in the first place? Yeah, so I think I want to challenge some of the premises in that question. But I feel like there is a perceived risk sometimes with automation where people go, well, you know, if we let the robots control everything, we're going to suddenly end up in, in a Terminator zone. But I think the reality is for most environments that currently they're undergoing an unknown amount of risk. They don't actually have great insight into what their infrastructure is actually doing. And they may be comfortable with that. And they may be used to a world where customers report an issue, whether they be internal or external, and gets escalated to a service desk and someone scrambles and wakes up at two in the morning and go through the whole hero process of fixing it in 20 minutes before more customers notice. But often that's not actually a great, well-quantified risk. And I think we've seen most of the data from the security industry has shown that the biggest security risk for most companies is actually in terms of inconsistency in production environments. So I think when you categorize that at a whole business overview perspective, the biggest risk for most companies is actually in terms of overall service availability, being able to ship new features, because in many cases, shipping a new feature is the same process as applying a security fix or a patch from a vendor, and their overall security posture. So I think the biggest risk for all of those is actually the inconsistency caused by manual deployment. And yes, there is the risk, and I've sort of made this joke before, when before I joined Puppet, that when I was at Google, Puppet was one of the tools that let me break more servers at once than anything else I'd ever come across. But the reality is we have an awful lot of tooling around Puppet and that. You can do a simulation run where you can actually, in no-op mode, run Puppet and it will tell you the changes that are actually going to happen. But rather than actually having the sort of processes that most enterprises have to reduce risk, where they'll have some checklist and you require to sign off by 25 different people so that when it inevitably breaks down, no one person is actually to blame or because they all are to blame, what we see is double down on your automation. Double down on automating your test environment. We know how this works with software. People didn't start writing less code to get their applications you know, working more reliably. They started building infrastructure around it. They started doing unit tests, acceptance tests, automated CI pipelines, continuous delivery. So the biggest thing we see is get people to adopt automation, get them to adopt a whole bunch of software engineering principles, stop being afraid of actually sharing post-mortems internally about when things went, actually went wrong, and to build a more fully automated solution we can actually test changes before they go to production. So this is actually, I think, one of the biggest benefits of an automated environment, that your production environment and your dev, test, UAT environment can all be exactly the same. The number of times that we've talked to enterprises who are adopting our tooling entirely because of a major outage caused by the fact that their testing environments weren't anything like their production environment. So the more you can equip self-service around this, where developers can actually run something that looks exactly like production, actually develops the code on, your QA and QE teams are testing code in exactly the same way as it works in production, you're minimizing risk, particularly if you're adopting agile principles around working in small chunks so that small changes are happening more frequently. That reduces risk more than anything else. And when you see a perceived lack of control and visibility, which could very well happen when we are talking in automation, then folks might have security concerns. So do you have 
something in your architecture and the controls that you put in your solution suite, which will automatically lead itself to higher visibility and in turn allowing people the flexibility to enable security in such a way so you can claim that if you put Puppet's automation solution, it's going to result in secure operation. Yeah, I think this is where you come back to the whole infrastructure as code approach and involving security in the design phase rather than just validating production or indeed being a bottleneck and a gateway or code being shipped to production. Once you actually have a decent contract between the security application operations people, they can actually all collaborate inside the same code repo. They can actually verify changes before they hit production. And your security people can end up having the same kind of access to self-service environments your developers and operations people are. And the contract goes multiple ways. I think one of the biggest frustrations we see amongst operations people is where they just get handed a tarball or a zip file of code and get asked, this is the thing that needs to be deployed to production. The contract we often see that works really well is for your application developers to go, no, we're going to package all of our code. We're going to produce proper MSIs, RPMs, or DEVs, whatever package format you're using for your platform, so that on the application side, we can guarantee this is the payload that should exist. On the operation side, they can go, well, here is in infrastructure as code form is what the infrastructure is going to look like that that's deployed on. And if you open those up to self-service deployments for all of your teams, including security, they can actually test those things. In addition, we have a whole bunch of features in Puppet that let you do things like tag certain resources as being particularly sensitive. And so perhaps when you're modifying user access controls or firewall configurations or SE Linux or any of those sorts of things that improve security posture, security teams can get a report on those. And you can do that before you actually hit production. So a standard software development lifecycle is having dev, test, and prod. You can also have test changes that are impacting security. Either require code review by your security team or for them to just be automatically sent a report. So when we look at Puppet and, of course, the way the marketplace is changing and new environments are getting created or there is creative destruction happening, what is Puppet doing to learn and innovate in these areas and differentiate from automation solution providers? So if someone has to really buy a solution or basically adopt a solution, they want to at least know that you are a thought leader and a go-to resource. So what are you doing? What's Puppet doing to become that go-to resource, that thought leader in the automation space? I would definitely argue we're already the market leader in what Gartner called the continuous configuration automation space, where we've been steadily stealing deployments from the DMCs, the Blade Logic, the HP service automation. People who are moving towards the new world are adopting a tool like Puppet. And of the people adopting a tool like Puppet, most of them are actually adopting Puppet itself. So I'd say we're definitely already the market leader and go-to resource in the enterprise DevOps automation space. But one of the things that backs that up would be our publishing of the DevOps report each year. So we partner with people who some of the listeners may have heard of, Gene Kim, who was ex-CTO of Tripwire and wrote the Phoenix Project, which is a DevOps enterprise story in novel form. Jez Humble, who is one of the authors of the continuous delivery and lean enterprise space and Dr. Nicole Forsgren, who's been a researcher working in the field of IT and organizational performance for an awfully long time. I have a company called DevOps Research and Assessment, and we partner with them on doing the state of DevOps report each year. And we're seeing increasingly that that's the sort of information that senior business leaders are really looking for. What we do there is we actually survey a whole bunch of practitioners and ask them about their practices, how their organization works, 
But we also ask them a bunch of metrics. How long does it take you to recover from failures? How often do you have failures? How often do you promote changes? And then using some statistical analysis, we've been able to show every year that people separate into different clusters. The people adopting DevOps practices and tooling are achieving significantly higher IT performance. And over the years, we've done a bunch of really interesting analysis on that, showing that companies who are adopting these processes turn out to be higher-performing IT organizations, and it has this really concrete impact both on the bottom line and the level to which they achieve internal goals. So, so I would say the fact that we're increasingly focused on integration with other components of the DevOps enterprise tool chain as it emerges is also a sign that we've definitely become a market leader in this space. When you look at digital transformation, that's the end and say the automation and DevOps are the means. So with that, that a means to an end approach and where digital transformation itself is evolving. So what do you think when we are looking at the developing areas where they are evolving and basically we are not there yet, that means you may not really be having all elements for the future ready because you don't have a crystal ball either. So what would you say your solution doesn't have because it does a lot of things, what it doesn't do? Yeah, no, that's a really good question. So I think if you look at the adoption curve of Puppet and Puppet Enterprise in this space, we were very much you know, at the bleeding or hemorrhaging edge of the market of very early adopters, working entirely in sort of textual interfaces. But we've been crossing the chasm for a while now, and we're being pulled into more enterprise environments where people have higher requirements around visibility, around multi-tenancy, and particularly the out-of-the-box experience. And so I think we've been very much focused on the out-of-the-box experience for developers and operations folks. But the last few years have really seen increased interest from the security side. So we haven't yet solved all of the out-of-the-box requirements for security teams in a DevOps world, and I think you're going to see us continuing to focus on that space, where we're giving more, let's get you 80% of the way through to your HIPAA, your SOX, your PCI DSS, those sort of compliance standards where people are really looking for a really short time for value. So in, in short, I'd say just more out-of-the-box experience and making tooling even more accessible to people. Let's talk about the very big question that everyone wants to get a good answer to, which is how should an enterprise go about selecting an automation solutions provider? And since you know that you cannot be the provider to everyone out there in the world, how would you basically guide and mentor the prospects and the customer or a bigger enterprise decision-making leadership out there? How do they go about picking it up and how they could best use automation and also, you, as you mentioned, DevOps towards meeting that end goal of uh, driving change with confidence when it comes to changes that you want to make for digital transformation? Yeah, no, that, I mean, that's the really big question, isn't it? So I think in general, the approach you want to take and that we're seeing sort of senior business leaders take quite seriously is that you want to make sure you're making a globally optimized decision, not just a locally optimized one. It can be very easy to let one team within your organization, say, take a prime spot and, and dictate tooling to all of the other teams. But it's important to make sure that you're taking into account the needs of all of your people, your application developers, your operations staff, and your security team. But also, and this might sound kind of odd in a lot of enterprise environments, are you taking into account the needs of your management chain? Because one of the biggest improvements to velocity we see amongst all of these groups is where you have a tool that lets management have the kinds of reporting they actually need without having to actually ask for it. So I think this is where self-service sort of cuts across a whole bunch of different domains. Are you, creating, are you picking a tool that will actually get used? Because too often we see software just sitting on the shelf and get renewed year after year and no one has any idea that it's not actually being deployed. 
So make sure it's a tool that people actually enjoy using and where the user experience is actually good and that you've defined a common interface across all of your team. So I think there's a few things there that the future is pretty uncertain, I think, in terms of infrastructure. We're seeing change happen faster and faster and to a greater degree than we've seen, I think, ever. Uh, we're only seeing acceleration with the adoption of public cloud and containers and serverless architectures and all of these things that are hugely disruptive to sort of traditional ways of working. And no one really knows where it's all going to go. I think if you'd said, you know, 10 years ago that a bookseller was going to become the biggest provider of infrastructure in the world, it would have been difficult to actually peer into your crystal ball and see that. So I think you want to focus on a few things. You want to look for vendors who both had experience managing that sort of change and have been around for more than a cycle or so. So you're looking for people who have open APIs and interfaces so that you can integrate with the rest of your tooling. Because I think the time has really passed for enterprises to, to just adopt one vendor and just say, we're entirely a Microsoft shop, or we're entirely a Cisco shop or an EMC shop. We're seeing people pick best-of-breed tooling to build out their tool chain, and that's going to change over time. So you're looking for a tool that has open APIs and integration points, and that has a wide degree and variety of partners that they're actually integrating with, so that they can continue being relevant as the rest of the world changes. Ultimately, I think I would kind of sum all that up in, are you picking a tool that is actually capable of being a bridge to the future? Can it manage all of the infrastructure you have now? And do they actually have their eyes on where things are going? And do they look like they're actually going to be ready for dealing with this disruptive change that is just coming faster and faster? Once again, thank you, Nigel, for sharing your thoughts and insights in our Solution Spotlight segment. No problem. Thank you for having me on. And listeners, I invite you to find the related conversations on our website at ciotalknetwork.com. This is CTN Solution Spotlight on CIO Talk Network. This CTN Solution Spotlight is brought to you by Puppet.